welcome to our special edition podcast on the life of the Apache warrior Geronimo, the man who carried on the longest war in history against the government of the United States, even longer than our recent engagement in Afghanistan. Join us here at The Voice of the Arts as we discuss with Jim Dunham, The Life of Geronimo. Our guest is Jim Dunham, who's presently the president of the Wild West History Association. Welcome, Jim. Well, thank you, Joe. I'm also the director of special projects and historian for the Booth Western Art Museum in Cartersville, Georgia. Great. Well, we decided today that we were going to talk about Geronimo. You had mentioned that the Native American, or at least the Apache concept of the afterlife is very different than the Western concept of the afterlife. Yes, completely, completely different. Uh, First of all, most of us would not desire to have war in heaven. (laughs) Would you not agree with that? (laughs) And yet most most American Indian tribes, uh, especially your Western tribes, the warrior tribes, when you buried someone, you buried them with their weapons because they were going to need their weapons in heaven because there was going to be war in heaven because their attitude was if there wasn't war, it wouldn't be worth going there. <laughs> and and in, in like among the Sioux, uh, there's like seven different levels of heaven and you'll get killed in each one of these levels and go on to the next one. So you're going to have to have enemies. You're going to have to fight your enemies. So that's that's one thing that's completely different. The other thing that's different is a is this this what we would call the coup system, and and coup is a French word meaning to strike, c o u p s, and and you know we 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 talk about if somebody in in a military you know, situation uh, overcomes the enemy that they've they've done a coup they've you know done that and the Indian people especially your Plains Indian people uh, they had a level of what was the bravest thing to do. And then what was the next bravest thing to do? And bravery was more important than winning a victory. Uh, they didn't they didn't fight their enemies to gain land or take over property. They did it as part of uh, exerting their their importance of the area. For example, hunting area. They wanted maintain the the people stay away from other tribes to stay away from their buffalo hunting area. And so their their people said, okay, here's what the best thing to do is to ride up to your enemy, smack him with a stick, which they called the coup stick, smack him with a stick, which will really embarrass him, and then ride away and don't hurt him anymore because that will that will be a better thing than to kill him. Now, can you imagine George Patton saying to his his men, okay, the goal is not to kill the enemy, but just make him feel real bad and make him embarrassed. <laughs> so if you get a chance and you ride up to Rommel, and he's on his tank, uh, make sure that you hit it with a stick and then right away. (laughs) (laughs) Completely different idea of warfare. Absolutely, completely different idea. And and so the these different levels of heaven then were for uh, greater opportunities for bravery. That's exactly right. Bravery and honor. there was no peace. Yeah, you don't want peace. You don't want you, what you're not looking for is absence of war. You're looking for situations to exert your courage and your bravery. And uh, and in fact, and one of the things that they used to say riding into battle is today is a good day to die. You know, 
because mm-hmm. because if you get got killed in in combat, what a great glorious way to go. <laughs> and then you had more opportunities to get. Oh killed yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you then you received all kinds of of acclaim when you went into the next yeah. the next uh, level. Of so it's a different well, world. Well, how did this relate to Geronimo? The Apache tribe, of which there's many different divisions. Geronimo was a, a Chiricahua Apache, and there's Mescalero, and there's the Hickoria, and there's all these different groups. In fact, many times the groups were enemies with the other groups. The Apaches were not like farmers. They were not even hunter-gatherers in the usual sense. They, they, they loved to raid other groups, and they would, they would rather than cr- grow crops, they would attack other villages and steal their property, steal their horses, steal their food. And they especially had that relationship with anybody who had the, the guts to build a town uh, in Mexico or New Mexico or parts of northern Mexico. And so the poor little Spanish or, or Mexican villages in, in their area were always under siege. Apaches were always coming in. And, and raiding and stealing and taking their stuff. And, and the Apaches saw that as a wonderful lifestyle. You know, one of the things, when they signed a treaty, when they finally surrendered in 1886, and they started that war in 1861, which means that the Apache War with the United States is the longest war in America's history. When they finally signed a peace treaty with the United States Army, with the United States government, they said, oh, this is great. We signed a peace treaty. Let's go down to Mexico and kill Mexicans. In the in the the officers who had signed the peace treaty said, "Oh no no no, we can't do that. We can't we can't do that." And they said, well, "Why do you think we signed a peace treaty? We signed a peace treaty so you'd help us fight our enemies." They didn't they didn't understand the concept of a border. They didn't understand the concept of people owning land. I don't think there's any tribe that had the idea that you could own and sell the land. And the the Apaches, Geronimo and the Apaches. Uh, tended to, to go to the mountain areas and hide in the mountains. They would move around in different locations where they where they felt they were safe. Well, did and, they did Geronimo stay active in Mexico after after the treaty with the U.S.? Oh, sure. After eighty six, eighteen eighty six, he he now is a prisoner of war at that point. But okay. but after he originally signed his first peace treaties, oh yeah, he didn't stop going to Mexico and killing people. In fact, that's how he got his name was was killing people in Mexico. Explain. All right. Well, first, first of all, he was born maybe 1825, somewhere around there, in either northern Arizona or, or New Mexico. And his name interpreted in English was the one who yawns. Now, that's interesting because this guy is going to be one of the most ferocious Indians in all of history. And yet they, they named him the one who yawns, which is a name probably he got as a child by his parents from yawning, not from any brave act he did. And, and <laughs> needing um, a I, nap. Yeah, taking a nap. He needed a nap. And, That's... and I think it's it's pronounced uh, Golatha or something like that is the actual name sounding in the in the Apache language. He was out on a raid somewhere, probably stealing horses from neighbors, and a, and a group of Mexican soldiers found their their village and attacked their village and killed everybody that was in the village, including his family, his his wife and his children. All right, so when he came back and found his family killed, 
he made it absolutely his purpose in life was to go after Mexican villages and kill people in Mexican villages. He became so ferocious, he was considered such a, a dangerous man that they knew who he was, that the, the Mexican uh, military, the federales, uh, knew Geronimo, knew who he was as a warrior and as an as a Indian uh, leader. He was never a chief, but he was a, a leader of fighting men. He was a warrior. And so he was not a political person like, like Cochise. But anyway, he was so ferocious that they, that they were afraid of him whenever he came and attacked. So much so that the soldiers, the Mexican soldiers, cried out to a saint, Saint Jerome, whenever they had him coming and attacking. They would yell out, Geronimo, Geronimo, Saint Jerome, Geronimo. And of course, that's where he got his name. The famous thing, the famous story, is the story of the American paratroopers. This is a story that goes back to 1941. And these were soldiers training to jump out of airplanes to go fight in World War II. All of this, the men had gone to the movies the night before, stayed up late actually, didn't get a good night's sleep. They stayed up late to see this movie which, which uh, Preston Foster is a 1939 movie that was called Geronimo. And it was the story of Geronimo, the Apache warrior. And so they're in the airplane and they're getting ready to jump out of the airplane. They got their parachutes on, they're all lined up. And the one guy says, well, do you have any, do you have any last words before you jump out of the airplane? And he says, yeah, Geronimo. And he Pulled his, he jumped out of the out of the airplane, pulled his chute, and became airborne with his parachute. And the guy behind him said, "I'll say the same thing." Geronimo. He jumped out, and by the time they got back to base, that had become the, the accepted word for for air paratroopers jumping out of airplanes, and that's where it came from. It's better than if they'd watched Singing in the Rain the night before. <laughs> Debbie <laughs> Reynolds. <laughs> But yeah, the Apache people are, are unique and and they they are probably the most violent of, of your American Indians. There's so many things about American Indians that are different. Their religion is different, you know, their culture is different, their clothing is different. The Apaches were very quick to adopt white man clothing. And and by the time that you have any photographs of Apache Indians. You pretty much have adapted all your clothing is white man clothing. In other words, with the exception of your buckskin leather boots, your moccasins, your breech clout is cloth, your, your shirts are cloth, your headband is cloth, you're riding horses, you're using rifles, you got bandoleras with ammunition, you got steel knives. They, uh, they very, very quickly adapted to, to uh, white culture things. These were a Stone Age culture, Stone Age people before white contact. And you can imagine what a great thing it is for somebody to introduce to you metallurgy. Imagine, imagine what a world of uh, steel knives and, and metallurgy means, axes and knives. And imagine never having a horse or a mule and then all of a sudden being introduced to that. And then the next thing is firearms, and they quickly embraced all those things. Mm -hmm. They also embraced alcohol, too, so that's a problem, too. When but, were they first exposed to the white man? Yeah, it was pretty early because, because the Spanish were moving up from Mexico pretty soon after Cortez, you know, in the 1600s. He brought horses 
to what is now Mexico. And within the early 1700s, that stuff was being uh, gathered by the tribes. Among the first were the Comanche and the Kiowa, but the Apache were very early in, in getting that, uh, getting horses. Where where were the Comanche headquartered? They were in Texas. And were they warring regularly with the Apaches? Some of the Apaches they got along with, and some of them were enemies. There's a, a group called Kiowa Apaches, and they got along pretty well with the, with the Comanche. The Comanches were Plains Indians that stayed on the plains and, and hunted buffalo, and the Apaches were, tended to just hang in the mountains and came down to raid villages. We'll hear the concluding portion of Jim Dunham's interview on the life of Apache leader Geronimo after a short break in which we'll hear Jack Handy's request to be reintroduced to his native habitat, which coincidentally happens to be the American Southwest. Reintroducing Me to My Habitat by Jack Handy I would like to take this opportunity to urge conservation-minded people everywhere to pressure the government for the reintroduction of me to my native habitat. My native habitat, of course, is the desert southwest, where I used to roam wild and free. But sadly, I no longer exist there. For several years, I have been largely confined to a small two-bedroom apartment in the Chelsea section of Manhattan. It is clear that I do not belong here, as my neighbors will tell you. I am still frightened by car horns, and the fancy Eastern food I am fed is at odds with my natural diet of enchiladas and ginger snaps. Often I can be found pacing mindlessly back and forth in my cramped office, which I am told is a sign that I am insane. Occasionally there are scattered sightings of me in my old habitat, shooting a wet straw wrapper at someone's kid in a restaurant in Santa Fe, then denying it doing my funny cowboy dance at a party in Silver City until people make me stop, but these cannot be confirmed. For all intents and purposes, I have been eliminated from my former range, the Rio Grande Valley. I used to be found from El Paso and Juarez in the south all the way up to Taos and sometimes beyond, if I missed the turnoff to Taos. Once I filled a vital role in the ecosystem— I would prey primarily on the weak and the old, who were usually the only ones who would hire me. Then when their businesses went under, they were removed from the system as nature intended. My world was in harmony, but as often happens, man intervened. Ranchers would drive me from their lands when they caught me throwing a keg party barbecue, maybe using one of their cows. Divorce and job dismissals took their toll. I found I could not coexist with my creditors. At one point, public sentiment against me was so strong that I was considered vermin and a pest. But now I think attitudes are changing. People don't automatically want to shoot me like they used to. This is mainly because of my re-education efforts and because they haven't seen me for a long time. The truth about me is finally starting to emerge. For instance, there is no record of me ever attacking a human unless he was much, much smaller than me. The old myths are starting to die off, such as the one that if you leave your campsite unattended, I will sneak in and steal beer and food from your cooler and maybe knock down your tent. The time to act is now. I am not getting any younger, and my rent here in New York could go up at any time. Also, I could be wiped out by the stock market. I have been conducting a captive breeding program with my wife, but so far it has yielded no offspring. The reason I found out is that my wife uses contraceptives, which I guess I knew. 
All of these factors make it imperative that you write the government and tell them to reintroduce me via first-class airfare to my old habitat. With a generous per diem and a late-model car, I think I could once again fill my old niche. I would probably try to mate with females of my species unless my wife found out. And I would be willing to keep a journal of what I eat and what TV shows I watch so that more may be learned about my ways. I will, if necessary, wear a radio collar. I am willing to do these things because I believe that until people can sit around a desert campfire and go, shh, hear that? And then listen for the plaintive howl of me, we as a society have lost something. You've been listening to Reintroducing Me to My Habitat from a collection called What I'd Say to the Martians, written by Jack Handy. Punching wasn't slow. I've turned the longhorn steer one way, the other the buffalo. I went up the trail in the 80s, oh, the hardships I have stood. I drank the water from cow tracks, boys, when you bet it tasted good. I've rode night guard many a night in the face of a driving storm and sang to them steers a doleful song as they rattled their hawks and horns. I've been in many a stampede too I've heard the rumbling noise And the light we had to turn them by Was the lightning on their horns Cowboy I rode within Is sleeping on old Boot Hill And the last cow drive was made to dodge On the Jones and Plummer Trail They're building towns and railroads now Where we used to bed our cows and the man with a mule, the plow and hoe, is digging up our old bed grounds. The old cowboy has watched the change, seen the good times come and go. But the old cowboy will soon be gone, just like the buffalo. The Old Cowboy, sung by Don Edwards, and before that we heard Jack Handy's Reintroducing Me to My Native Habitat, 
Let's return now to my interview with Jim Dunham on the life of Apache leader, Geronimo. We can talk about how the war started. You know, prior to the war with Mexico in 1846, not too many American citizens want to live in the deserts where the Apaches are. So there isn't a large group of people going to Arizona and New Mexico. It's hot. There's no air conditioning. So there weren't a lot of Americans that were interested in uh, Arizona. In fact, in fact, the war that, that Polk got us involved in, it was not a popular war. It was a very unpopular war. The vast majority of people in America said, why should we go to war with Mexico? And, and what are we going to get? We're going to, now we get California, which, which is pretty nice because you got some really good stuff in California. And then you got the, you got the ocean there. You got, you know, the San Francisco and, and Los Angeles water ports. But in addition to that, you get Arizona and New Mexico. Who wants to have Arizona and New Mexico? They're just, just big old deserts that nobody will ever want to live there. Now, the, the good news is that the war was over and, and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed before they found gold in California. Because had they found gold first, when gold when when California was completely and thoroughly owned by Mexico, uh, we could have lost that war. Because because if we declared war on Mexico, they would have said to Portugal and Spain and in England and France. They would have said, help us out, help us fight in the United States and we'll pay you in gold, lots and lots of gold. So it was very fortunate. But there weren't, there weren't a lot of people going to Arizona. Now, what happens is that in the 1870s, you find some precious metals in Arizona. The, you know, Tombstone, Arizona produced like $30 million worth of silver. And that's going to bring a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of white Anglo-American citizens to the desert, in spite of the heat, they're gonna they're gonna want to go there, and then they're gonna have trouble with the Apaches, and they're gonna ask the army to get involved. So in 1861, we've got one of the the leaders of the Apaches, Cherokee, is a fellow named Cochise. Cochise was much easier to get along with. Geronimo was an irascible guy, and very few people liked Geronimo. He was a powerful leader. He was very very much feared. And, and many people respected him, but he was not likable. Cochise was likable. And Cochise actually made friends with a, uh, a, a man who was a mail man who, who carried the mail for the United States government. And he went to Cochise all by himself without any support, with military support or anything, found Cochise's stronghold. And he said, if you'll stop attacking these these." stagecoaches that are carrying the mail, then we can be friends. You don't have to attack them. And Tom Jeffers, he had a big red beard. They call him Red Beard. He became a friend of Cochise to the point that they actually became blood brothers. You know, this is this is back in the days when they would actually cut their hands and, and hold them together and mix their blood. And then they became as close as family members if they had done that. And then Jeffers later on will become a uh, an agent for the Apache Reservation. But Cochise was the leader of this group of Chiricahua Indians when a young man was kidnapped by Indians. Felix Ward, young man, teenager. His father was John Ward, and his father, John Ward, went to the army and said, send troops, go after those Apaches. They've stolen my son. They kidnapped my son. 
And so Lieutenant Baskin goes to Cochise and demands that he return Felix Ward. Well, Cochise had no idea what he's talking about. He's, this was an entirely, completely different group of Indians that had done this kidnapping. And Cochise said, I can ask around, I can put out the word, I can, I can try to find out what happened, but I don't know what happened and, and we'll, we'll just have to find out. Well, the Lieutenant was not gonna take that for an answer. And he immediately grabbed about four Apache leaders and took them into captivity and took him back and Cochise actually was going to be arrested and he he pulled his knife cut the tent and exited out the back way and then the lieutenant said okay you either produce this young man that's been kidnapped or i'm going to hang your apache leaders which was just a stupid thing to even think about doing but he went ahead and did it he hanged these guys they had absolutely nothing to do with this young fellow being kidnapped and had nothing to do with any of that. It was a completely different other group of Indians, but it started the war because once Cochise had his men hanged, he said, okay, there's no peace around here. We're going to war. And that mm -hmm. began the war in 1861 that would not be finally resolved until Apache, until Geronimo surrenders in 1886. That's a long time to fight a war. Somebody figured out, or at least made an estimate, that for every Indian we killed during those years, the United States government spent a million dollars. Now, of course, today we spend a lot more money. I mean, for every terrorist we kill, we probably spend $50 million or $100 million. But back in those days, a million dollars a man was pretty expensive uh, money to put out for killing Indians. Because we had, we had 15, 20,000 soldiers in the field for two decades. This was during the, the Civil War as well, right? Yeah, during the Civil War. Now, during the Civil War, we didn't put a, a heavy presence of military. In fact, the Indians, many of the Indians, in fact, this is true of the Plains Indians too. This is true of, of Sitting Bull and, and, and Crazy Horse and all those guys in the, in, in the Western Plains. They thought they had basically licked the white man. They thought that they had, had beaten the United States because the, they removed all the soldiers out of the, out of the West and brought them back to fight the Civil War. And, mm. and so, yeah, there was, there was there were very few uh, serious conflicts until after the war was over. So it must have been a very welcome surprise in 1866 or Oh yeah, when all these all these soldiers show up. Yeah, that's right, exactly. They all show up. And it was very difficult because the Apache's lifestyle depends on killing people. It depends on stealing. It depends on tacking, you know, they're basically like Bedouins. They travel, you know, around and instead of camels, they have horses. And and they and and they basic you know that's their that's their lifestyle is to yeah. is to steal the from Bedou their neighbors. But the Bedouins don't kill people. They're sort of a no. combination uh -huh. of Bedouins and the mafia. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly what it's like. These are career criminals. That's what the the, the yeah. only law they obey is one for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So why did it take so long for the war to wind down and end? What you said, thirty years later. Yeah, it it uh, it's it, first of, first of all the 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 United States government kept a presence in the in the West fighting these Apaches all these years, but they kept they kept thinking that they would be able to bring it to closure, bring it to an end, 
and and uh, they never got agreement. They, they, first of all, the Indians kept kept surrendering, and they would and they would go on reservations for a while, and they would they would accept presents, they would accept uh, food, and then as soon as they felt like it was time to leave, they would get on their horses and go down and, and attack the village somewhere. And so it was just frustrating for the United States government. They they couldn't get the Indians to play their game the way they wanted to play. And it really took until they brought in a real heavy military presence. What really did the difference is General Crook, he knew about fighting Apaches better than anybody else. And he knew... This is the same George Crook that was at the Battle of the Rosebud? Yeah, yeah, same George Crook. He realized that the only way you're going to ever find these guys, you can chase them all over Arizona, you can chase them all over New Mexico, you'll never catch them, you'll never find them, unless you hire Apache scouts. They can find these other Apaches. And that's what he did. He hired hundreds of Apache scouts to work with his soldiers. Sometimes he had as many scouts as he had cavalry troopers going after these these Apaches. And were these scouts compensated or, or with oh they, yeah, yeah. No, they Thank were you. yeah, and they and that's why they did it because they were paid, and of course they they were given all kinds of good stuff, and they made made things available, purchases available for them with presence and in, in military. Yeah, they were they were basically made uh, to be official members of the of the military. They were definitely paid. And then when Geronimo finally uh, was, I guess, in captivity. He had a second career, did he not? Oh, yeah, so he was a very creative guy. He's a very talented man. And uh, and so so the first thing that happens is is that when he when he goes on reservation, he's famous of course. The name the, by that time, by the 1880s, the whole world knew the name Geronimo and and uh, he was he was extremely famous. And so Wild West shows wanted him. And uh, and there's the Buffalo Bill Wild West show is the most famous Wild West show, but right after the Buffalo Bill show is the Miller Brothers 101 Ranch Wild West show in Ponca City, Oklahoma, and the Miller Brothers got permission for Geronimo to be part of the performers in their Wild West show, and that was a big deal because people wanted to see this dangerous killer this dangerous man and and uh, that so much had been written about and that that they had heard about and so yeah he he was salaried and he was he was working for the for the wild west shows they would have him uh demonstrate how to kill a buffalo they had him they had him ride around and shoot off blanks and fire his gun and do all that stuff and he learned to sign his name and then he also had photographs made and he and he would give you an autograph and a picture of himself, and then charge you a fee. And then he learned that he could make bows and arrows, and he started making these bows and arrows, and and he would sell the bows and arrows. And he had income coming from the making of bows and arrows and the selling of his photographs, the selling of his autograph. And when he died, they said he had like ten thousand dollars in the bank. And this is like nineteen oh eight when he died. So he's, he's got a lot of money. <laughs> Too bad he, he wasn't around for, the, you know, the invention of, uh, of film and... Uh, well, he was right on the edge. 
He's right on the edge because 1903 is the first Western film, The Great Train Robbery, was made uh -huh. in the Western state of New Jersey in 1903. And by the time Geronimo dies, he, he could have been in the movies. There are photographs of him, uh, a lot of photographs of him. And, and uh, one, of, one of the other Indians, chiefs or leaders of that time, Quanah Parker, did make movies. He was in the movies. And, oh, no. and they had films. Buffalo Bill, there were films of Buffalo Bill. Uh, he died in 1916. And there's films of, of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. We think that what happened with Geronimo is that he was coming back from a, a celebration, a party that he was at, and he was riding his horse, and he had probably had too much to drink, and now he's getting to be an old man. He was living in Fort Sill, Oklahoma at the time, and he fell off his horse, and he landed in a big puddle of mud and water, and it was a very cold night, bitterly cold in, in Oklahoma. It can be that cold. And uh, he developed pneumonia and died of pneumonia. That's, that's what we believe how he died but uh but he and he was he was very creative and, and learned to make a living <laughs> in, as a as a prisoner of war yeah right. he, he actually he wrote in in uh, teddy roosevelt's inauguration parade yeah. okay yeah, he rode his horse in that parade an interesting guy uh one of the most famous american indians probably only crazy horse or sitting bull is equally as well known maybe not even as much Jim, thanks so much for joining us and telling us about the life of Geronimo. Bye-bye. Okay, Bye-bye. When You're Throwed by Bruce Cascadden. If a feller's been a straddle since he's big enough to ride, why he's had to throw his saddle on most every kind of hide. Though it's nothing they take pride in, most of fellers I have known, if they ever done much riding, has at various times got thrown. It might happen when you're starting on a roundup some fine day and you feel a bit uncertain about some little wall-eyed bay because he swells to beat the nation when you're cinching up the slack. And he gets an elevation in your saddle at the back. He starts rearing and a-jumping and he strikes when you get near, but you cuss him and you thump him and you get him by the ear. Then your right hand grabs the saddle and you catch a stirrup too and you aim to light a straddle like a woolly buckaroo. But he ducks his head and switches, and he makes a backward jump out of reach your stirrup twitches, and your right spur grabs his rump. Stay with him, yells some feller, but you know it's hope forlorn, and you feel a streak of yeller as you choke the saddle horn. Then you feel one rain a-droppin', and you know he's got his head, and now your shirt tail's out and floppin', and that saddle pulls like lead. And you know there's no use trying when your spurs begin to slip, now you're upside down and flying, and the horn tears through your grip. You feel a vague sensation as upon the ground you roll like a violent separation twixt your body and your soul. You land against a hummock, and you lay and gap for breath, and then something grabs your stomach like the awful clutch of death. Yes, the landscape round you totters when at last you try to stand, and you're shaky on your trotters, and your mouth is full of sand. The boys all swear you beat a circus or a hoochie-coochie dance, Wiping up the canyon surface with the bosom of your pants. Yeah, there's fellers gives prescriptions how these horses should be rode. But there's few that gives us descriptions of the times when they got thrown. I was hanging around town, just spending my time. Out of a job, not earning a dime. 
feller steps up and he said, I suppose you're a brown fighter from the looks of your clothes. You figures me right, I'm a good one, I claim. Do you happen to have any bad ones to tame? Said he's got one, a bad one to buck. For throwing good riders, he's had lots of love. I gets all head up and I ask what he pays to ride this old nag for a couple of days. He offered me ten and I said, I'm your man. A bronc never lived that I couldn't fan. He said, get your saddle, I'll give you a chance. In his buckboard we hops and he drives to the ranch. I stayed until morning and right after Chuck, I stepped out to see if this outlaw can bug. Down in the horse corral, standing alone, is an old cavallo, a strawberry roan. His legs are all spavin', he's got pigeon toes. Little pig eyes and a big Roman nose Little pin ears that touch at the tip A big 44 brand was on his left hip You neck and over the long lower jaw I could see with one eye he's a regular outlaw I gets the blinds on him and it sure is a fright Next comes my saddle and I screws it down tight Then I steps on him and I raises the blind Get out the way boys, he's gonna unwind He sure is a frog walker, he heaves a big sigh He only likes wings for to be on the fly He turns his old belly right up to the sun He sure is a sunfish and son of a gun He's about the worst bucker I've seen on the range He'll turn on a nickel and give you some change He hits on all fours and goes up on high Leaves me a-spinning up there in the sky I turns over twice and I comes back to earth I lights into cussing the day of his birth I know there are ponies that I cannot ride there's some of them left, they haven't all died I'll bet all my money, the man he lied That'll stay with old Strawberry when he makes his high dive Cowboy poet Bruce Kiskadden with When You're Throwed and that was followed by Marty Robbins and the Strawberry Roan closing out the podcast. Again, our thanks go out to Jim Dunham for sharing his wealth of knowledge about the history of the Wild West. Folks, thanks for keeping me company. This is Joe Weber saying so long, here from the Voice of the Arts. Mm-hmm.